Hello, fellow foodies. I'm Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Mark Blumenthal. He's a leader in the global botanical and natural products community. Mark is the founder and executive director of the American Botanical Council, which is a leading independent research and and educational nonprofit organization dedicated to disseminating accurate, reliable, and responsible information on herbs and medicinal plants. Mark is also the editor and publisher of Herbalgram, an international peer-reviewed quarterly journal. He's the founder and director of the Botanical Adulterants Prevention Program, which is a nonprofit international consortium committed to researching and exposing adulteration and fraud in botanical ingredients sold in the global market. Mark has appeared on more than 400 radio and television shows, and he's been an author on more than 500 articles, reviews, and book chapters for many major publications. He was also awarded Natural Health Magazine's Hall of Fame Award for opening America's eyes to the healing powers of herbs. I'm so happy to have him on the show. Thank you so much for joining me, Mark. Hey, it's a thrill, Cassie. Thanks for inviting me on. I'm, I'm grateful. Yeah. So why don't we start with the beginning, kind of what got you interested in herbs and in medicinal plants? Uh, actually, it was kind of a sideways uh, direction for me. I, in 1968, uh, I was graduating from the University of Texas, mm-hmm. uh, the degree in political science and philosophy minor. I had no real training in botany or pharmacology or natural products, chemistry, a lot of the things that in ethnobotany, a lot of things that I study and live for today with passion and have passion for, acquired later. And I became a vegetarian as a war protest against the Vietnam War, which was building up at that time. And so mm-hmm. I just did not want to be involved with the killing consciousness where we paid other people to go do what we find objectionable morally or emotionally or both. So I started going to health food stores, which back in those days in 68, health food stores were nothing like Whole Foods markets today, which, by the way, is from Austin, where I'm from and where I'm speaking to uh-huh. you from right now, which is where I lived since 1964. Uh, and basically, I just... You know, back then, health food stores were like pill shops with various uh, foods for special dietary use, low sodium, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, diet foods for people with uh, diabetes, etc. And there was a wall of herbal teas on uh, one health food store, this big wall full of these herbal teas, which I had no idea what they were except for the mint and the chamomile. Because my German grandmother once in a while would give us chamomile tea for an upset stomach. So Uh it was early herbal medicine uh, lesson there. And I just started picking up literature in the health food shops, which back in those days was mostly folkloric literature and folkloric books about the history of herbs and you know how people have used them for folk medicines and stuff. There was no real science being done and any science that was being done perhaps mainly in Europe was not getting reported over into the United States, which is something that we took on later about 10 or 20 years later. So I just started studying herbs and, and medicinal plants and wild edible foods and things like that as a hobby. Wow. Living on a commune up in New Mexico near Taos for a couple of years and off the grid, I just got more and more interested in this and then came moved back to Austin and eventually started an herb business selling ginseng and different herbal products to health food mm-hmm. stores. 
And one thing has led to another, and I got more interested in the research and the education and the advocacy and the science and the development of quality standards for industry and regulatory issues and uh, decided to start the American Botanical Council in 1988 as a way to take this newsletter, Herbalgram, mm -hmm. which, back, which from 1983 to 1988 was a newsletter that I published for other industry organizations that I helped start with some friends and colleagues in the industry. And back in those days, we didn't have the internet, we didn't have email, you know, <laughs> we didn't even have fax machines in some cases in the early 80s. So we basically printed a eight page, then a 12 page, then a 16 page black and white newsletter and then folded it up and mailed it out to several hundred people in the industry and in the academic community, et cetera, and Norman Farnsworth and Dr. James Duke and some of the great pharmacognosists and ethnobotanists who, whose shoulders we stand on. Yeah. And, uh, one thing led to another, and I decided, you know, um, I'd like to take this newsletter and turn it into something like a full-fledged scientific American-style four-color publication, peer-reviewed, and mm -hmm. something that people like holding in their hands with gorgeous photography and stuff. And so I started this nonprofit organization, the American Botanical Council, as a vehicle to take Herbalgram from newsletter status to a peer-reviewed journal. And in the process, we ended up generating all kinds of other educational and other types of uh, programs and projects along the way in the since 1988 in the last 32 years so that's great that's, that's how it started i kind of backed into it that's great and how how many people um do you have now that that receive the newsletter you started with a few hundred now oh uh well we did i think it's six or seven thousand now wow. that get it uh and that's just the members of abc and other people and companies will get you know it's like if a business gets it they might get five or ten copies of the, of the journal we don't call it a newsletter anymore we have newsletters as well we have published six or seven publications herbalgram being our flagship because our it's the name of our website herbalgram.org okay it's our, it's our flagship and it's the only print publication we have but we have a, a weekly newsletter with the herbal news and events with all kinds of webinars. They used to be conferences. Now they're mostly webinars and Zoom, Zoom chats. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, reviews of the media of herbs in the last week. Uh, we have a newsletter that comes out every two weeks with about 16 reviews of the most recent clinical studies and meta-analyses and systematic reviews on clinical studies on botanicals. Uh, we have a monthly newsletter called Herbal Egram. We have a quarterly newsletter on, on the botanical adulterants monitor yeah. that reviews all kinds of reports on adulteration and fraud in the marketplace. We have a, a sustainable herbs program monthly newsletter, which is part of our separate website called the Sustainable Herbs Program, which deals with uh, with the question: How do you, do you know where your herbs come from? Do you, as a herb tea drinker, yeah. as a, as a herbal extract or herbal pill user? Uh, as part of your dietary supplement regimen, do you know where these herbs come from? And do you want to know? And our yeah. site, and our site, the Sustainable Herbs Program, asks these questions and answers a lot of them through videos. So it's That's got like 35 or 40 videos. It's a very video-centric site compared to the herbalgram.org site, which has tens of thousands of pages of articles that we've published over the years. Uh, yeah our books that we've published, all kinds of material. So one is very linear and academic oriented and research oriented. And the other one is more visual 
dealing with sustainability and regenerative practices, which has always been one of our key issues and concerns. How do you really see the you've really seen the change in the marketplace since when, when you began ABC and then came along the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act in 1994. What were some of the problems around the supplement industry or just the herbal industry in the past? And how did that change when Disha came into um, practice or into law? Well, one of the key problems from a regulatory point of view, there's other problems. There's educational problems with lack of education. There's quality control problems with lack of adequate quality control, which is a regulatory problem as well. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that happened prior to the passage of Deshay, the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act back in 94, was that the Food and Drug Administration saw any type of herbal product other than maybe after-dinner mint or Mm -hmm. something like that if it was marketed with any kind of direct or implied association with any health kind of health benefit, the FDA would regulate, would classify it as an unapproved drug. In mm-hmm. other words, there was nothing in between food and drug yeah. where herbs and other supplements could have some kind of safe harbor from inappropriate regulation uh, that didn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense that people should have to uh, get a drug approval to take garlic if there's clinical research that shows that garlic helps lower blood pressure, which there is plenty of. Yeah. Why should that have to go through the expensive and extensive new drug approval requirements of the Food and Drug Administration to check out the safety? Uh, first, we already know garlic is safe. We eat it in our in our food and we eat it in our in our in our spices. It's a it's a food. It's a spice. And many and since you're your your podcast is food centric. We'll talk about for a moment the herbs that are medicinal that are also foods and they're also spices and culinary herbs because they they kind of inhabit this spectrum of possibility and this spectrum of of pharmacological activity and benefit. Yeah. And so yes, you can eat garlic as a food, and yes, you can also look at it as a medicine with various va- values. Um, matter of fact, research by the National Cancer Institute published in 1989 or 1990 showed that in China, people who eat garlic as part of their diet on a regular basis had a markedly lower incidence of gastric cancer, stomach cancer, and GI, uh, GI cancer, possibly because the chemicals in garlic was they, were, were chemopreventive. And this, was big, this helped create a whole new program at the National Cancer Institute back in those days called, you know, the uh, where they started looking at the cancer preventive effect of food. Yeah. Of And herbs. Take turmeric. It's a food. It's not a drug unless you want to make it into some kind of specialized type of material for a specific type of indication. But there's, but, but the shade did to answer your question, it created a safe harbor, created a, a legal place where botanicals as well as vitamins and minerals and uh, other types of items that are legally classified as dietary ingredients, where they could actually be on the market, be used for health purposes, make limited health-oriented claims like a structure function claim, because food, 
you know, a, a drug is this, as the food is the uh, drugs defined as something other than food that alters the structure and function of the body. So the mm -hmm. definition of drug automatically presumes that food alters the structure or function of your body in some way. That way would be by providing nutritional benefit in in whatever yeah. way. And so there's limited ac ability for companies to make structure function claims. How the herbal preparation can, uh, can positively affect the structure or function of your body so long as that claim is based on some reasonable scientific evidence. And that, that's controversial for some people who want to see more clinical research-oriented uh, claims, uh, documentation for, su for such claims. Uh, at the same time, that has helped fuel the growth of this industry and fuel the growth of the herb and the supplement market from 1994, which is now 26 years. Uh, and it was October yeah. 15th. It's a, and it's a multi-billion dollar global market now. Which we, um, which we monitor. Mm -hmm, exactly. Uh, as you may know, our Herbalgram publication every year has an extensive herb market report. We've been doing it for over 20 years, close yeah. back to Deshay time, where we have probably the most extensive documentation of what the size of the herbal market is as dietary supplements, because teas are, are measured differently. Herbal yeah. teas are not part of the dietary supplement market. We're just focusing on the dietary supplement market, although we have had some occasional articles on the size of the herbal tea market. And herbal dietary supplements have been growing at a rate of around 8 9% per year. In 2017 to 2018, increased over 9% over the previous year. This last year, 2018, 18 to 2019, which is the most recent data, uh, it increased uh, 8.6 or 8.4%. So in the 8 to 9% every year, growing uh, significantly. Uh, and by the way, the new issue of Herbalgram, which is currently at the printer, we're talking August 2020, which is coming out in the next week or two, our Herbalgram, whenever it gets there in the mail, has some market data from the first six months of this year, 2020, which is the first documentation of the sale of herbs in the COVID period, because consumers are buying more herbs and other supplements in the belief that these herbs and supplements can help improve their immune systems. It's like America, many Americans woke up, millions of Americans woke up to the fact that, hey, we got this immune system. And if we just sleep more, and eat right and get right of exercise and use judiciously these dietary supplements, maybe we can increase our immunity to either prevent COVID or reduce the impact of COVID. There's no science to support that specifically on COVID, but there's science that suggests that these things are immunomodulating. There's certainly that's the case. And people are taking more elderberry and more echinacea and more ashwagandha and as well as their vitamin C and vitamin D, etc., because they're reading reports that these things are generally increasing of the immune function in the first place, Absolutely. and whether or not they could be useful for COVID remains to be seen, but there's lots of people out there doing it without the government or anybody else telling them to do it. We're not telling them to do it, because as, as a science organization, we don't make recommendations, especially where there's no science yet. Your most recent report, so I haven't seen the new six-month report for this it proved, I think, incredibly um, important and, and, and valuable to scientists uh, like myself. So I actually just um, 
went on a big spending spree of all the top herbs of commerce because you know my natural products collection is based off of many wild harvest herbs from um, different systems of traditional medicine. But we were fortunate to just receive some philanthropic funding to look into this question of are there any herbal ingredients that um, are that fall within the guidelines of a, of a dietary supplement that could have any protective effects in preventing viral entry or preventing replication of SARS-CoV-2, the virus responsible for COVID. But it's, it's the kind of work I do in the lab is incredibly enabled by these kinds of assessments that you're doing at ABC. So I just want to say thank you. Um, for for the for the big job that you guys do in monitoring, um, you know, glo- global trends and um, and kind of keeping a finger on the pulse of what's happening in the supplement industry. It's so important. Right. And, and basically, you know, we're not an industry group. We are basically an independent, as you mentioned earlier, independent scientific research and education organization. But we do work with industry trade associations and industry mm-hmm. groups. Because that's where the rubber hits the road, and we're we're not that so academic that we're in an ivory tower and, and irrelevant to what's happening. We're concerned about what people put in their mouth, what they put on their skin, you know, how well was that material produced? What's the value network, uh, which we prefer to use that term instead of supply chain value okay. network? Because supply chain, there may be a supply chain in the value network, but it's not always as linear as people try to make it out to be. Supply chain is simplistic. It's reductionist. Let's look at this in a bigger context. Value chain. And why is it value chain? Because there's people along the way that provide value to that botanical material, whether it's grown or harvested in the forest or grown in a small plot somewhere in India or Sri Lanka or wherever, and then somebody cleans, dries it, and then cleans it and separates plant parts, and they go into the market through, you know, for different purposes, Mm -hmm. value network. And and one of our goals, by the way, the Sustainable Herbs Program and our site at, at the Sustainable Herbs Program is how do we increase social justice and economic justice for the people who are along the value network, especially living in developing countries, where they're helping provide the raw materials that are going into consumer products, whether these are thin materials as powders or as extracts or as essential oils, going into consumer products that people in industrial nations like the United States and Western Europe are benefiting from the fruits of their labor often they're not getting adequately compensated. Yeah. What we're trying to do is stop this industrial race to the bottom on price, but try to increase people's awareness and their consciousness that it does, it's worth it to help pay more for raw materials, A, because you want the best quality, and B, because you want to support the people along that value network who make it possible. Yeah, no, that's that's so important, and it and it does translate into real impacts not only on local people, but especially for wild crafted herbs. You know, um, I do a lot of work in the Balkans, as you know, and I've seen collections of wild gentian and cowslip and um, these different and orchids, terrestrial orchids, where populations are being wiped out because they earn so little per plant, and there's such an incentive to collect as much as they can from the wild. And in the end, it's destroying wild populations, but it's also not serving the people where where these plants grow. And yeah, I, I really think that sustainable chains are are the way to go. Kind of like fair trade in a way, right? 
You know, I think the very first article that I ever published as editor of Herbalgram was around 1983 or 84. It was a art, small article by Stephen Foster, whom we both know. Yes. Well, man, one of the world's greatest medicinal plant photographers. He's yes. a self-trained botanist, expert on medicinal plants, a brilliant guy, close friend, ABC board of trustee, all that, contributor to Herbalgram. A lot of our photography is from Stephen's photography. But mm-hmm. back in 83 or 84, he wrote an article on wild uh, orchids in the United States, the, the cyperpediums, which mm. were the yellow lady slipper, which at that time had been, and for many years, <clears throat> the roots of the yellow lady slipper or the bulbs had been articles of commerce because lady slipper was a natural sedative. And it, there was lady slipper root was sold in the marketplace as a commodity for both to making herbal teas and herbal extract. The problem is it was a CITES listed uh, endangered uh, uh, plant as all yeah. as wild orchids tend to be. I'm not sure about in the Balkans. But yeah, there's definitely CITES listed. Yeah, <laughs> I was I would have bet on that. I would yeah. I just don't have the list in front of me, so I couldn't be sure, but I could bet on it. So the point is. Back in 83 or 84, 37 years ago, I published my first article just dealing with conservation of medicinal plants that have market value and how to change that. And, of course, the industry uh, organizations and the better better, uh, players, the responsible players in the industry went along with that kind of information and they stopped using Lady Slipper in their formulations for with hops and valerian and skullcap and then they used to have lady slipper in there too as natural herbal sedative or relaxant or calmative products you know you know the lady slipper got taken out fortunately and removed because responsible elements in the herb industry took notice and let me just say something about that because people often talk about the industry as if it were this term that represents everything and as if as if it were monolithic as if it were homogeneous, and it's not. It's very heterogeneous. There are different players and different aspects of the industry uh, that play in the industry. There's companies that are high quality, that are run by people or owned by people with a great deal of ethics and, and morals who really care about the quality of what products they put into their uh, ingredients they put in their products and they care about the user experience for the best possible safety and benefit and uh, uh for the consumer yeah. and then there's people out there that have just come in here because they smell the money and they've bought companies or they buy into companies and they and they may or may not care about the quality, but they're more concerned about profitability. And then there's people out there selling intentionally selling fraudulent material just to make a buck. And that's the people we're trying to ferret out and expose through our botanical adulterants prevention program, which is now completing its ninth year of operation. That's and we've great. had over 200 companies, associations, uh, lab- in laboratories, uh, universities, and research centers around the world that are supported, that have supported and or endorsed BAP, is what we call it, BAPP, yeah. the Tanner Prevention Program, because so far as we know, we're the largest uh, effort uh, that's focused on researching and educating the industry players and the and other stakeholders including the public as to what herbal raw materials extracts or essential oils are being adulterated uh which means that they're somehow being 
made in a fraudulent manner in which the the representation for the material there's this there's this non-disclosure there's concealment that herb of what's actually except, in there herb b but they but that's cheaper they don't tell you that or yeah. it's been diluted with herb b and it's not concealed i mean it's not not uh, uh revealed so there's you know it goes to the economic gain for the seller and economic detriment to the buyer and sometimes not always but sometimes potentially the health detriment to the buyer oh the, yeah i mean i think of especially I, I i warn my students about any kind of herb that's promising immediate effects such as like herbal viagra or rapid weight loss rapid muscle gain many times these are adulterated with pharmaceuticals that can prove very dangerous um, because we don't even know what levels are present in these mixtures and it's not herbal at all i mean it's yeah so let me just let me let me make a distinction i'm glad you brought that up mm -hmm. because that is a form of adulteration clearly if there's a pharmaceutical active pharmaceutical ingredient in a natural product base whatever it is mm -hmm. labeled as it being herbal or a vitamin herbal mixture mm -hmm. but it's got viagra or some kind of analog of sildenafil in it mm -hmm. or whatever we prefer to call that, and industry trade associations and the FDA also are in agreement on this. These are basically uh, illegal drugs being sold masquerading as dietary supplements. Yes. They are not dietary supplements in the first place. Yeah. That's illegal drugs right. being sold and masquerading as dietary supplements, and we make that distinction, as opposed to and examples that we have of herbal supplements where the herb itself has been switched with another herb or diluted with another herb, or if it's an extract that the chemistry of that extract is spiked with other compounds that are used as for quality control markers, but those compounds are coming from cheaper material extraneously. And it's, you know, in order to fool the laboratory testing uh, method, mm. let me give you an example. We're talking about Native American botanicals. You're you're from the southeast. Yeah. Let's talk about what used to be one of my favorite herbs, and used to be is because I don't need it anymore. I'm, and it's saw palmetto. Oh yes, Serrano arethans. I love that plant. Yes. Yeah. Small dwarf palm with the jagged, uh, sharp little teeth on the. Mm -hmm. on the uh, All over South herb. Florida. Yeah. All over Florida, and it produces these berries that, when ripe are smelly, waxy, yucky, but used by the Seminoles as a uh, traditional emergency food. Mm -hmm. So they're yeah. edible, they're edible and, and safe. But for, you know, the last hundred or more years, since the eclectic physicians, they've used saw palmetto and its extracts for uh, benign prostatic hyperplasia in middle age to older men. And I used it for 30 years or so. Mm -hmm. I'm now probably graduated beyond that now. <laughs> <laughs> joys of aging but at any rate uh, what happens is that in the past we've known that saw palmetto has historically been cut or adulterated with other vegetable oils from lower cost vegetable uh, and palm oil like palm oil from mm. you know, industrial palm oil which has some similar but different chemistry and so that's historically in the last 30 40 years or more how saw palmetto a fraudulent material has been cut, but now it's changed. 
There's some papers published in 2017, and we published a paper in 2018, our Botanical Adulterants Bulletin, which is on the Botanical Adulterants Prevention Program website, which is free to anybody who wants to go there. All of our stuff on the Botanical Adulterants Program is free, as is the Sustainable Herbs Program. All we're asking people to do is register. So it's mm -hmm. free information. We have tons of free information. But with saw palmetto, what's happening is this. In China... They're taking uh, fat from pigs, cows, sheep, and chicken, and they're taking that fat and rendering it down into its constituent fatty acids, and then taking those fatty acids and recombining them to meet the levels that are supposed to be there according to the United States Pharmacopeia monograph for the quality control parameters and criteria for that ingredient of salt palmetto extract. Yeah. This is this. So they're cheating the test, basically. Fraudulently. The test. Mm-hmm. With animal fat. Oh, that's awful. Salt palmetto. Fraud. So it may, what that means is even the official method, the USP method, now gets compromised. Let's talk about those methods, Mark. Can can you explain some of those methods on a simpler term for the audience? Like, how does how do they actually check these? Well, yeah. I, fortunately for me, I have a guy named Stefan, Doctor Stefan Gaffner, who's our chief science officer. He's a pharmacist and he's a natural product chemist, and he's the person that you want to explain. Okay. He's he's really the guy. I'm not a chemist, so let me just share that with you. Okay. But let's just to make it really simple. There's different, you just don't put something into a black box and, and get an answer of what it is. You have to know what you're looking for. And you have to have standards for what you're looking for to put into the black box so that you can see if, if the standards are replicated in the material that you are looking at to see if they're those same standards, meaning pure compounds of compounds of naturally occurring chemicals in the plant and there's different spectrographic and chromatographic ways mm -hmm. to look well let's back up the first way for quality control in herbal medicine is organoleptic you look at the material does this look like the form of what you want does it smell like is yeah. is the taste the right way so there's certain ways that your sense the sensory evaluation is the first way you determine if something is what it is or is what you think it's supposed to be the second level is microscopy you look at the micro micro uh, the, the the cellular structures and you have a library of photographs or drawings of those cells that mm -hmm. you to say these cells belong here because this is herb X. But wait a minute. These cells over here, these kind of structures don't belong here. So microscopy can be a very uh, uh, useful tool. The problem is there's not enough trained microscopists anymore. The, a lot of the, um, mo the training and a lot of the analytical work in um, – quality control in the food industry and in the herb industry has gone to the next step, which is the chemistry, looking for the right chemical compounds. This herb is known to have a concentration of these compounds and, uh, and other plants don't have these compounds in them or don't have these compounds at these certain ratios in a fingerprint type of thing. And there's certain things like high performance liquid chromatography and other kinds of ways to look at these things, uh, ultraviolet, etc. Now yeah. there's, 
The problem is some of the older methods are easily fooled because okay. they're looking for colors, you know, color similarities. Uh, so that you have bilberry extract, for example, which is a type of blueberry, a European blueberry that unlike regular blueberry, when you cut it in half and you have the blue on the outside and the blue, regular blueberry is yellowish brown on the inside, bilberries are purple blue all the way through. Oh, beautiful. So by weight, they have a much higher yield of these purple blue pigments that we all know as anthocyanidins and proanthocyanidins. Mm -hmm these 25 or 50 cent words that, that refer to these antioxidant and other activity compounds that are purple blue pigments, sometimes red, etc. Yeah. you find in mainly in berries and, and, and fruits. Okay, that's where they find a lot of them. Well, by looking at it through UV only through ultraviolet, people were taking um, charcoal and red dye number two and selling that as bilberry extract because the old analytical simple ways would just do check for color and the red dye number two would peak in the right place and oh, it's okay. You have okay. to use high performance liquid cartography that breaks everything down with peaks and like a peaks and valleys on a chromatograph by each chemical depending on how much time it takes to elute these kinds of, 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 of pictures. So. There's different ways of looking at the same material. And what's happening is the fraudsters are figuring out how the industry is relying on certain laboratory methods to determine the authenticity of the material and to detect the adulteration. And what they're doing is they're sophisticating, they're manipulating, they're chemically changing the materials that they have that are fraudulent in order to beat the system. Yeah. And so we have to stay one step behind these guys. I would love to be able to say we can stay one step in front Ahead. of these guys, but that would mean we're teaching them how to cheat. So we can't, we, we're not doing that. So, you know, we are, you know, we're working with our good friend, Dr. Iklas Khan, who's one of our, um, our partners in this program, along with Roy Upton at the American Herbal Pharmacopeia. Dr. Mm -hmm. Khan is at the National Center for Natural Products Research at Ole Miss. Uh, which is one of the world's leading analytical laboratories for herbal medicine uh, analysis and for development of laboratory methods for herbal medicine and, and herbal material analysis. And, and, he, so, and they are FDA funded. They are the FDA funded center for excellence in the United States for the analysis of uh, medicinal plants and uh, 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 the herbal supplement materials, et cetera. Yeah. In those methods. As a matter of fact, I believe that's where you and I first met. Was at a conference. I, there. I think so. Yeah, I really enjoy. They have an annual conference every year, and it's 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 a very informative conference with lots of representation from academia, but also as you as you mentioned from government and and other uh, organizations that are in the herbal research and and practice field. Yeah, a government, especially FDA, because they help fund mm -hmm. the conference. At yeah. least until this last year. We didn't have it this year. Yeah, unfortunately with COVID. Well, on the, on the topic of, of, of herbal safety, there's another element that's been in the news a lot this week, and that's around this idea that anything that's natural could be safe and that any plant you could just take and put into a supplement. Let's talk a bit about oleander. I know that ABC also came out with a beautiful statement of warning 
the public about the dangers of this particular plant. Yeah, thank you. We put out a, a press release on Tuesday with this concern. I mean, I'm fine if this oleander drug material eventually plays out to be useful in treating COVID and or cancer or whatever, because mm -hmm. ABC as, as the American Botanical Council as a scientific organization supports the notion and the value proposition that pharmaceutical research for developing new drugs from plants is a wise thing to do because plants know how to make all kinds of chemicals. So yeah. you, and I, you and I know this because that's what we've dedicated a lot of our life to, right? Exactly. What but what we were concerned about is oleander. We didn't want people going out and going over to their neighbors or the park down the street and grabbing some leaves of oleander and coming home and brewing up a, a, some tea from one or more leaves of oleander or uh, the leaves or the flowers or any part of the plant. Any part of it, really, it's, yeah. It's toxic throughout. It contains cardiac glycosides, the, the primary one being oleandrin. Uh, and uh, oleandrin is similar to, but different from digoxin, which is a digitalis glycoside from the foxglove plant, which is poisonous also and deadly. But they've been able to make a medicine for heart uh, yeah. using it in a very properly purified manner and titrated for dosage according to a cardiologist and all of that kind of thing. This is not something that is herbal medicine. This is not something for self-medication. Yeah. This poisonous, toxic, deadly plant that that has medicinal uses within pharmaceuticals ap and medical application only, not yeah. for somebody to make a tea or an extract out of or a home remedy, no. And that's why we felt compelled to jump out there quickly and say, don't go there. And I noticed that you also published very quickly on Monday in your blog, so thank you for that. Yeah. Because it's important to, to notify people because there are people in this in this country with all due respect, you know, who, who are looking for natural cures for prevention and treatment that will go out and try almost anything. Out There's of the desperation. People are desperate for for solutions. I think the the main thing is we have to as me as a scientist and you representing a, a, an organization that's all about you know, the science behind herbal medicines is, it's important to make that distinction. There are many plants that are sources of drugs. Uh, the yeah. point is, you, you mentioned that there are drugs that come from plants. Uh, Dr. Farnsworth and Dr. Fong, I believe it was, back in 1980, uh, had an article, this is Norman Farnsworth, the late Norman Farnsworth, a famous pharmacognosist, one of the mm -hmm. leading uh, medicinal plant researchers in the world, and one of the founders with Jim Duke, with me and uh, the American Botanical Council. So he's great. one of the founders of our organization. He's also one of the world's leading medicinal plant experts. He published an article in the Bulletin of the World Health Organization in 1980 called Medicinal Plants and Therapy. And he listed all the plant-derived drugs that come from different plants. And remember the word drug comes from the word drug, which means to dry, in Dutch, because they dried plants to make medicine, so the whole word drug in the very first place <laughs> implies that it's made from a plant, at least that's where the word comes from originally, several hundred years ago, by the way. That's always yeah. good to keep in mind. And they found out of, a, they found 119, this was back in 1980, so that's 40 years ago now, they found 119 medicinal plants that are the sources, of, I mean, 119 drugs from medicinal plants. 
Curiously, 74% of the drugs made from those plants correlate with the traditional historical use of that plant by native indigenous peoples. Yeah. 74%. Like quinine from the cinchona bark for fever or malaria. But quinidine, which is a different alkaloid from the same plant for cardiac arrhythmias, is not a traditional use. Yeah. They showed the distinction that sometimes the same plant would generate two or three different drugs with different or similar but different structures that had different applications, some traditional, some brand new. Mm -hmm. So the good news there was there's new opportunities by looking at plants from I mean, drugs from plants. So that that's so that's where that 25% figure came from. That 25% of modern drugs come from plants. That figure has been up, updated now to like 50% because you have analogs that are based on plant structures. Mm -hmm. You have uh, also you also have the fungi, and you have now uh, natural products from the oceans that were not included in some of those drugs. So about 50% of our drugs, directly or indirectly, are derived from medicinal plants or natural products. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, I think nature is, is the greatest chemist, hands down. I mean, the complexity of these molecules and the ways that they interact with different biological targets is, it's fascinating. And, you know, what's, what's amazing to me is while we have this strong history showing clearly that we can find useful medicines from plants, we have, I think the latest estimates are there are around 28,000 plants used medicinally by people but I know as a scientist that does this all the time, there's, there's, we're still in the low thousands, if that, when it comes to actually investigating those species. There's so much that we have to learn and explore from plants. Um, and I think there's so much hope and potential um, for medicine from and plants. That's, that's 28,000 plants out of a quarter of a million or more plant, uh, higher, mm -hmm. higher plants that we know of. Exactly. Yeah, it's. I think the, the number is uh, 374,000 is the current estimate. They're always changing it as they count these, you know, numbers. Um, but that's 7.5% of all plant life has been used as a medicine by humans at some point. And then you have the animals using plants as medicine as well. In zoopharmacognosis. Yeah, you know, that, yeah. yeah. I, I always loved that article by Eloy Rodriguez. Yeah. The, the, the first... Uh, was it Aspelia? The 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 apes or whatever were were eating the Aspelia, which would they they were presumed to be for their headache or something in Africa, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's fascinating. There's 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 a lot still to learn. So, Mark, as you look forward um, for the future of ABC and your really important programs around adulteration and sustainability, where do you see the future direction of of the organization, and what are some of the major challenges that you guys are going to focus on tackling? I think first of all, I think the future is bright. Mm -hmm. I'm an I'm an optimist. It's hard to be an, a, a nonprofit director and <laughs> a, a, like you know a nonprofit entrepreneur, if you will, and be a pessimist too. You know, because like you know you, you, everything you want to do, with, ah, that's not going to work. So we, we don't have that kind of mindset. We're about we're about possibility. We're about uh, optimism. We are seeing more and more people becoming interested in using herbal supplements in the idea of natural is better, or at least that natural has its place depending on mm -hmm. what the utility is and what the preparation is all about, et cetera. So we think that's going to continue to climb. The 
unfortunate silver lining maybe of this uh, COVID uh, situation, or maybe the fortunate silver lining of the unfortunate COVID situation is that more and more people are learning that there's potential value in dietary supplements in general and medicinal plant uh, uh, materials as dietary supplements as part of that. Uh, that's an awakening. You know, people are just discovering that. That'll increase the number of people into the, the coming into the tent. Uh, what we want to see, however, is a sustainable sources of supply. Mm -hmm. Those are wild because most of the plant materials still coming into the marketplace are coming from wild sources, not just cultivated. So we want to see what we want to make sure that there's environmentally sensitive and appropriate conservation uh, um, um, philosophy, but practices happening and people organizations you mentioned earlier, Fair Wild very important organization developing standards and inculcating standards and certifying materials that are properly yeah, yeah. wild harvested in the wild etc uh, we want to see uh, people producing products that are continuing to be high quality and as i mentioned earlier there are many companies that are run by ethical responsible management that really do source out the best quality raw materials they can and ethically produce and, and, and quality materials and care about the user experience uh, as being safe and effective uh, for these herbal pre preparations. Safety is generally not the problem. We have very little problem with, gen with herbal preparations because unlike oleander, which is not sold as a dietary supplement, most herbal supplements are based on herbs that have been handed down for many, many years. And, and there's a great degree of empirical data plus modern other data, use data of their relative safety as yeah. foods as medicines, etc. It's a et big cetera. distinction there, yeah. We want to see more research. We're, 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 we're a, a, a scientific-based nonprofit, so we want to see more research to us. We love more research. At the same time, uh, we want to see that quality research. We want the research to be as well-controlled and as appropriate as possible for whatever the material is and whatever the particular use is. And we want to see people being responsible in how they market and how they promote these products so they, they're based on substantiated, scientifically substantiated, and when, when appropriate, uh, traditionally uh, substantiated uh, base, uh, benefits to consumers. So we think that the market is going to continue expanding. It has been for, for decades, the last two or three for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, remember, herbal medicine is something that we grew up with as human beings. Uh, it is part of the of the heritage of our planet. Yeah. It's part of the intellectual property of human beings from our grandmothers to our great-grandmothers to the nth degree going back thousands and tens of thousands of years through the oral tradition. A very important part of human uh, living on this planet. And the good news is that there are many, many plants, as we've talked about, that have a great deal of opportunities to help incre increase people's health benefits, uh, increase their healthy livelihoods. Uh, I believe that a robust lifestyle includes proper eating. I'm a vegetarian, like I said, so I'm into proper eating as far as I'm concerned. Uh, mm -hmm. Exercise, diet, stress control, meditation or prayer, whatever, and the judicious use of responsibly produced and marketed dietary supplements, including herbal preparation. So it's all part of a, of a holistic uh, um, conversation. Uh, so I'm just grateful that I, that I kind of backed into this thing when I became a vegetarian 52 years ago. That's and I'm having, fun, I'm having a lot of fun. And, and part of the fun 
is meeting people like you and other people around the world that I've had the honor and the pleasure and, and the opportunity to meet in the 50 years so years that I've been involved with this and hopefully another 20 or more years. I don't know. We'll see. Because it's about the people who are yeah. interested in researching in this, that it draws such interesting people, uh, including a lot of the people that were like traditional healers who I've met mm-hmm. and uh, people in the industry, people in academia, all over. There's, there's, it, it, the, the herbal medicine conversation is full of engaging, uh, brilliant and very highly committed people including yourself. So thank you for including me in this group of podcasts that you're producing. I think it's wonderful. Well, thank you. This has been just fabulous learning more about the history of ABC and all the great things that you've been doing. I mean, it's amazing. Can you, Mark, can you tell us again where people can find more information? You have so many great resources available online. And here we have Herbalgram for those of you watching the video. And here's the cover story we did on, on the United States Pharmacopeia, which is celebrating right now its 200th anniversary. Oh, was, that's amazing. Yeah, USP, USP was in, uh, was uh, created by an act of Congress in 1820 to develop standards for medicines, which by in 1820 were mostly plants and herbs. Yeah, <laughs> that's so right. They've been, they've been setting the standards for, for all kinds of drugs, all kinds of preparations, including herbs and dietary ingredients as well. So, But the people can get more information about us. We're at herbalgram.org. We're the American Botanical Council at herbalgram.org. Quick side note, uh, I came up with the idea uh, for this organization. I was trying to come up with a name for it. And I said, you know, the, the acronym for this organization should be as easy as ABC. <laughs> well, there you go. ABC, American And that's Botanical how I Council. came up with American Botanical Council after I came up with ABC first. <laughs> it was backwards. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much, Mark, for coming on the show. Thank you so much for including me. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. If you enjoyed this episode, check out the others as well. We have more than 60 full episodes available on our website at foodiepharmacology.com. If you'd like to watch the video recording and the other recent episodes, check them out at the Teach Ethnobotany YouTube channel. Also, help me out by posting a rating on Apple Podcasts and sharing the link to this episode and others with your friends. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>